0: Hello, everyone.
1: Hopefully everyone had uh, a good lunch, maybe a walk. Uh, The weather continues to get warmer, and it's supposed to be sunny by the end of the day. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, This afternoon, we have a schedule that's a little different. I'm not sure if it's uh, the same as the printed schedule or not. We've had to do a little bit of rearrangement because of schedules. Uh, Normally, the next event we would have as the last event of the day is a grand way to close things out. Um, So we're going to have a grand way to start the afternoon. And uh, please don't go away because we have other talks scheduled for the afternoon. Um, We've talked about security. We've talked about some issues of emerging threats. We've talked about nation state reactions to those threats. Uh, We've looked at a number of research projects that are going on. Another big component of what we do here at Sirius, and uh, what we view as critical to uh, working in the information realm, is the area of privacy. One of the reasons for good security is to have good privacy. And the two really go together. They're often referred to together. But they're not the same. policies are different, and some of the characteristics we measure are different. So we wanted to have someone here who could represent some of the interesting issues related to privacy. One of the best people to do that is somebody who's been working in the field for a while and is very well known, Um, starting off as a chief private, well, not starting off, but notable as chief privacy officer at Sun Microsystems, which is where I first encountered her, Um, and uh, then moving on through a number of different things, ending up uh, at the McAfee, uh, Intel, uh, McAfee being acquired by Intel as a Chief Privacy Officer and Vice President. Um, Michelle has been working in this area for quite some time, is very notable for a number of the things she's done, and in the interest of her privacy, I'm not going to say any more about those. <laughs> I will instead let her fill you in on what she would like to say, uh, but more importantly is for her to present her uh, her talk this afternoon. So please join me in welcoming Michelle Finner-Indentity.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And and thank you to to Spaff and to Josh. It's been, I think, a three or four year odyssey to get to Indiana. So I am so pleased to finally be here. Um, and I'm going to shamelessly embarrass my nephew, Traver Clifford, who's a freshman here at Purdue studying computer science. So he will join our, our ranks uh, soon, soon, soon. We can't wait. Not soon enough. So I want to talk a little bit, why do we care about privacy? And, and really, more importantly, what should we do about it? And then I'm going to end with what I've been doing lately this year um, with a, a small kind of PSA for diversity, just for a, a moment, um, because I think it's very topical. A lot of a lot of what we're going to talk about today um, comes from a different perspective of the threat landscape, and the people landscape, and the data centricity uh, landscape. So, I'm going to start with, uh, I'm really going to talk about a book that you can get for free. I never promised to be a great businesswoman. Uh, You can buy the paper, but you can download for free from Google Play, um, on your Kindle, on your Nook, or at apress.com. A book I co-authored with uh, two very special people in my life. One is my business partner over the last 15 years, over various array of companies who came out of the digital publishing world. His name is Jonathan Fox. When I first encountered Jonathan, who is now my chief of staff um, at Intel Security, he was the editor-in-chief of Sun.com and responsible for different constituencies receiving all sorts of content, um, both on the heavy, heavy technical side, some of our Java communities and listservs, and then all of the other kind of outreach and public works um, kinds of world. So he very much is, is operation on the value side of the chain. And then the other person is uh, my father. So Tom Finnerin Traver's grandpa, um, has been in the computer science realm since before we called it that. Um, he studied at the Ohio State University. Go, Buckeyes. Sorry, Purdue. Um, and went into the Navy soon thereafter. Now, the, the interesting thing, so there's a mix of generations with students and some of us who are a little slightly more <laughs> mature. Um, back in the punch card days, who remembers the punch cards? Do you know what happens when you're five and you knock over a bunch of punch cards? Yeah. Yeah, you know what? In the 70s, corporal punishment was a thing. So I grew up <laughs> on a raised data floor back in my broken childhood with my dad. Uh, The other element of my uh, upbringing was my both of my parents are patent uh, attorneys. And so from a very small one, and I actually went and followed, I was actually a psychology, a a Bachelor of Science with uh, psychopharmacology was kind of my bent, and self-efficacy was my senior thesis at Ohio State as well. Um, And then I went on to law school. And I'll tell you two stories. The first is, you know, why technology... Why human factors? Why human and tech together? Uh, Back in the early 80s, when I started at Ohio State, there was a research flyer for a research assistant in robotics. And I thought, well, that sounds fun. Who doesn't love a robot? Um, So I signed up. And it was through the special education department. And what we were doing is we took a RICO industrialized machine. So have you ever seen one of those, like, car arm screws in car repetitively? Well, they have these nice joints and things. So we took our Apple IIe+, probably programming in BASIC or Pascal, and we adapted the the paddle input to five different paddles, which were kind of identify joint, tell it what to do, and then go. So it was quite a cumbersome thing um, to move the thing around. So when I first showed up at the school, my job was to track the movements, figure out how the kids learned science, and teach them science, and, and judge their reaction, interfacing with robotic technology and the code that was bespoke for the purpose. So day one, I pulled up at the school. It was an elementary school with a special ed program. And I said, hey, I'm from The Ohio State University. I'm all of 18 years old. I'm quite cool. Tell me where the research is uh, for the special education. And this woman kind of looked at me, and she goes, oh, the vegetables. Yeah, the vegetables are in the back of the school. They're depressing. And I thought, okay, thing number one, we call students vegetables. Red flag on the play. Um, So I go in and I teach them. And and the thing that happens then as in now is particularly when you have bespoke code, um, there are bugs inevitably. And in our code, there was as well. And so there are 17 discrete strokes that when you hit those in that precise order, it would cause the machine to reset. And so what the kids would do inevitably, and every one of them learned how to do it very quickly, they would grab some sort of a beaker of something liquid. And then if you've ever worked with a a robotic arm of that ilk, they don't just like stop. They go like this. And then they reset back to home. So what happens? when you're in a lab with millions of dollars of equipment and lots at stake and lots of grown-ups, they start, everyone starts freaking out except a child formerly known as Vegetable and their teacher, an 18-year-old, you know, dummy like me, who looked in each other's eyes and we laughed and we had a moment. And that was the light bulb that has directed the rest of the course of my life. It's not the technology that's cool at all, as it turns out. It's how it allows us to be more human. It's how it not just eases a burden, but actually shares a moment. It's how it turned a vegetable into someone who could communicate with his or her parents and tell them what they wanted for lunch instead of letting it just dribble down the side of their faces. And someone who started to believe that they could And so as I got further into my studies with these kids and more, we also found that their self-efficacy levels, what their mind, body, spirit, right, could actually raise their T cell production, lower their cortisol production. So their health was better, their welfare was better, their psyche was better, and our technology got better. So that's kind of the the first step of it. The second is, uh, when I went back to law school, I found out very quickly. Um, from one of these wonderful PhDs, I actually went in and interviewed to get my PhD in psychology, thinking oh, I'm pretty hot stuff as an undergrad, why not get a PhD? And I sat down and I told him how I was going to change the world with technology and how it's really great, it's going to really you know, help us to communicate and do all these great things. And, and he said, young lady, come over here. Let me show you my calendar. Here's the meeting with the dean where I fight for money. Here's the meeting where I organize a meeting. Here's a meeting when I take in students. I'm seeing staff nodding and going, the day-to-day job of a researcher and an academic is not the same job as I was describing. How do I go out and just go crazy telling the world that these users are not vegetables, but these users can actually tell us how to design systems better than we can? That these inventors who seem so crazy aren't so crazy after all. They can create new novel and non-obvious things. So he said, go off and be an advocate for a couple years, and if you still want to come back, kiddo, you're in. And it's been about 30 years, so I think he's still waiting somewhere. But he was right. I went to law school, um, and it was my second time there because my mom, my dad went through on the GI bill at night while he was being an engineer for Standard Oil, and then my mom went through Um, When I went to kindergarten, so I went to kindergarten and then she'd pick me up and we'd go to law school together So it took me two rounds to get through school Now the first um, and then I'll stop telling stories until I can tell potty training stories about Traver and really embarrass him If there's any young co-eds in the back, he's really a good guy. So it's just his his aunt is a little Um, So I was sitting there in class in law school uh, Not knowing that I wanted to be a patent litigator at the time, but still with this love of technology and this love of people and my professor said, you know, there's a case in, in Socratic method, stand up and be humiliated. Uh, come, come nigh. We'll pay you more later, but we'll come and be humiliated in law school. That's kind of how it goes. Um, and he said, you know, there's a traffic light, and the only people that could, could access it are the public works people. And both sides of the light were green at the same time, causing an accident. What is that called? And this is like our first week in school, and we all sat there terrified. And I stood up and I went, raise ipsa loquitur! And he looked at me like, "Oh my gosh," because that's actually the right answer. It's a Latin phrase saying the thing it speaks for itself. And the reason I knew that is I have uh, there's three girls and one boy in my family. We're all you know Irish quintuplets, uh, years less than a year apart. Most of us. <laughs> and whenever we'd go out and play in the yard, my mom would be studying for her law school exams. And I always remember we had this one little commode right near the playground, and we'd come inside. And she'd come out, and she'd say, Thomas Robert Finneran Jr., put the toilet seat down. And he'd always stand there and go, Mom, how'd you know it was me? And she'd stand on our porch and say, raise it, low <laughs> So it doesn't have a lot to do with privacy engineering, but such a good story. Um, so the combination of these things of what happens when you are the ultimate system holder, what happens if you have a perspective that people are actually people and not vegetables? What happens when law and policy and value and technology come together? Well, what we hope happens is a privacy engineering manifesto. So I want to tell you the last of hopefully my longer-winded stories, but a story of exploration of once upon a time when there was a time when it was economically viable to get to a new land and discover new lands and to bring in more commerce. and. Spices were more valuable than gold. And in that time, the thing holding us back was technology and will, because everyone knew that the world was flat. Everyone. The church said it. The rich people said it. Everyone in control said the world is flat. There are dragons at the end of the world. And if we travel over there, everything will go south and everything will end. Except that there were observers who actually knew how to sail. And they looked out. Had a sky that looked like a bowl. And when they walked toward the horizon, it seemed to just have a brief kiss, and then you wandered closer, and it kept going. So they took everything that they knew, and they took a diverse group of people, and they got some money, and they used the current technology, and guess what happened? We discovered that there's endless opportunities. So the beginning, the end of that myth of the dragon began a new one. So everyone has told me for the entirety of my career, since I switched from patent litigation into data protection and privacy and security, that privacy is dead. How many of you believe it? Come on, you can admit it. Privacy is dead. So much technology. Everyone can see it. Everyone says privacy. You know, Scott McNeely, my old boss, said privacy is dead. And they topped off with a hearty get over it, which is great, except I worked for him. And I was doing privacy, not so much. (laughs) It's still probably the most quoted quote. Larry Ellison, the boss who I got when he bought my company. Also, there's no privacy. Get over it. I've I've heard this a million times in a a bunch of different shades, except I'm an observer of people and projects and things. And there's not a single one of y'all, despite the fact that we all have Amazon, that is dressed identically today. We crave individuality. We seek individuality. But at the same time, orthogonally, we're kind of boring. We eat, we sleep, we procreate, we die. So there are patterns that are similar, but there's individuality that says, what is this privacy complex thing? And can we ever hope to actually have standards and systems that are somewhat predictable, that can be used to innovate? Can we get on our little ship and sail to a different horizon and think about privacy differently? But there certainly are dragons. There are stormy seas ahead. There are all these revelations from traitors. I mean, I guess that's a perspective I shouldn't say out loud. I mean, gentlemen who may or may not want to be um, reality stars who are enjoying their borscht with Putin right now and complaining about surveillance in Russia, I'm sure, um, just to have a little perspective. My opinions are all my own, by the way. None of mine should be impugned to Intel, Corporation, or any of its boards of directors, or even customers. They are my own. Uh, But but whether or not you like Ed Snowden and what he did, I think it's more of a failure of our press than it is uh, that individual person. We've had people wanting to have a dialogue of where is the virtual cop on the beat? And what would we have him do? What is the corridor that is public? What is the corridor that is private? These are the questions that are very thorny, very difficult, very multicultural. And they're much more interesting to me than a pole dancing girl in in Hawaii in love with a guy who steals laptops. That's an easy conversation to have. And we can have opinions on both sides of that, whether he's a hero or whether he's a traitor. But the harder conversation is, what do we want our society to look like? What are the inherent risks in not taking action on threats that we can detect? What are the trade-offs if we do? So those are some of the, sto- the stormy seas. And some of these are repetitions of the past. I think we're calling it big data now, You know, the availability of Hadoop and parallel processing to help us make decisions. I won't say better ones, but hopefully correlated ones at least. Next year, we'll call it ultra data or databizing or something. But we used to just call that statistics. Right? Back in the day, ye old day, if you had a sample size large enough for it to be something, uh, we called it statistics. Whether or not we like the hype, whether or not we believe that clouds can be managed well on or off-prem, these are the stormy seas that impact our ability to have, I think, a practical conversation about privacy. And this is the result. We leave the users on the shore. How often do we design systems and just refer to people as users? I will assert to you that it is the modern day version of vegetable. I'm not a vegetable. I'm a person who has some decisions to make. And I've been disenfranchised to be dumb. So it's not just about make it easy. It's not just take choice away. It's not like, oh, we can't possibly educate these users. It's how do we actually think differently about designing systems and the integrity of systems so that we can actually have some participatory um, specifications and requirements. And so this is my suggestion to you, is that we functionalize the definition, the core definition of what is privacy for the purpose of industrialized information. And by industrialized, please think broadly. NGO, you know, educational, government, et cetera. But other than that colloquial conversation about you know, what kind of skirts your child should wear and how long should they be, when you're building systems for privacy, I will assert to you And and this is a much longer, uh, i actually am teaching a semester-long class based on this, so I'll give you my, my back of envelope definition, which is we believe that privacy can be considered to be the authorized processing of personally identifiable information according to fair information principles. And each one of these unpacks a little bit, and I don't have long enough to really unpack it, but think about the authorization, the entire explosion of identity management tools and technologies, the texture that you can have with a role-based ecosystem, the decision when you federate information, maybe from cloud to cloud, maybe physically, maybe virtually, and permissioning. How do we deal with the, the terribleness of passwords? How do we deal with if we decide to move on to a biometric? All of those kinds of decisions fall under, I think, the who is allowed to do what with where and whom under authorization. Processing, I think we focus very closely on either collection or result. And we kind of forget about everything in between and end of life. So we get very upset when we're forced to fill out another form. We get very upset when somebody already has a data set relating to us. But we kind of don't build our systems thinking, what if you actually followed a system from cradle to grave and how it might interact? with different systems, as you put these kind of Lego blocks, these tangible computing objects of systems that are capable of processing personal data. And then personal identifiable information, this definition legally and socially is expanding. I think when you said IP address was a personal a piece of personal information even three years ago, the technical community just kind of rolled their eyes you and said, you are crazy. Most of these IP addresses really are only the address to an apartment building and not to a person's room, but more and more we're seeing legislation from around the world saying de facto every IP address equals personal information. We're going to see a lot more of this because of the Internet of Things data mesh networks that's not being built with privacy engineering, because surveillance has not had that conversation in art, in law, in the public, with customer input that we need to have. But that, definition of personally identifiable information is expanding far beyond the kind of classic definition which is a piece of information that which on its own or in combination with others identifies a human person. That's been the definition for at least 20 years. It's a good one, but it's getting mushier with the ability of what we're calling big data. Um, and then fair information principles, you can put whatever accent on this you want. You can call it OECD principles. You can look at the new Thai law that was just uh, put out there in draft today. Most of the fair processing principles are things we've been talking about since the 1960s, either in relationship to government data, health data, financial data, or internationally in a very broad cast. So if we look at these and we say, this is actually, if you think about it, can be converted into requirements and specifications. And those requirements and specifications can be communicated to developers, to managers, to data governance professionals, to lawyers, to judges, to citizens. We suddenly create, instead of a yes, no determination on something as, you know, as, as complicated, as fundamental as the whole data set that describes you throughout your lifetime, suddenly we've broken it down into something that we can innovate on. Hallelujah. That's what we do. When you do that, my suggestion to you is that you've now put that person in the center of the mix. When you go through this process with younger people, especially people who have grown up in the digital age, what you find very quickly is kids do care about their privacy. That's how many people do not believe that is true. Ah, they put everything on Facebook. What do they know? Kids today, I tell you. Well, if you ask, my typical thing that I start off with in, in high school or junior high is, okay, who pooped today? And they look at you like, all right, see? We got one hand up. OK, all y'all are going to die. Because <laughs> a, it's a system. <laughs> garbage in, garbage out. So you walk into a high school, and they are mortified that you even know. And then it's like, oh my god, who's the creepy mom talking about that? And then I'll like point to that guy, and I'll be like, hey, you, Jock, I know you get a crush on her. And they'll be like, oh my gosh. So I was like, that reaction that you're feeling young ladies and gentlemen, is how I feel when I see you with a red Dixie cup, Traver Clifford, (laughs) which he never does. There's only juice in there when he's talking to my nephew. Um, That's how I feel when my mortgage score is disclosed publicly or my my real estate and my home is actually published online publicly uh, without any sort of protection. So do they care about what your credit card data is? No. Do they care about saying really stupid stuff? Do they have the judgment that you have after half a century of walking on the planet? Probably not. Does that mean that they are not setting requirements and jumping liquidly from platform to platform and choosing to curate different personas that they choose? I will posit to you that if every citizen guarded their data as closely and creatively as a 13-year-old girl guards the name of her crush. We wouldn't need to be here. So think about who are the people we're not asking about when we ask about system requirements and specifications. And let's start getting their input really early in this process to understand what systems are supposed to be doing, not just what are systems supposed to be getting away with. That's a compliance discussion. So, a privacy engineer—we're really defining as a very broad brush of community. I am not a technologist by birth. I kind of—well, I sort of am by birth, I guess—but not by training. Um, but my input is just as valid with the other specification requirements holders. I'm the—I'm the governor of the system. I'm the one who's talking to the guys in Washington and Beijing and and around the world in Strasbourg. Um, so multidisciplinary creativity expression to innovate and communicate is what is needed to really get on the bandwagon of coming up with a system that is data and person centric. And drawing from all sorts of people, so this is back to my kind of Columbus illusion of, you couldn't, have, you couldn't have sailed into unknown waters without a sexton, without someone to make sure you had the right provisions on your ship, to someone who is aware of situational intelligence. What does it look like when the boat is going wrong? So thinking about your finance, your user experience, art, design, surely we can stop doing click, drop down, click. Surely. Like doesn't anyone have a girlfriend in art school? Come on now. We can do better. And I'm asking everybody to kind of lay their best things on the table. So dual book accounting, for example, from the finance side of the world, pretty good stuff. We didn't use it maybe less than 100 years ago. And now our entire world economy depends on profit and loss, on assets and liabilities. We need to bring those things to the table again and say these are the tools that we can use from each of these disciplines to say, what is it that we need to educate our boards on? When you know that most people on boards today in public companies are CEOs, salesmen, that's what a CEO is and does if they're doing their job, and finance people. How are they ever going to grapple with data? How are they ever going to grapple with what is good and quality in risk for data? And I don't necessarily mean insurance risk. I mean, why isn't Sony kicking Microsoft's butt out the window? Because they've spent a lot of time cleaning up after Sony number one breach when their systems were actually making really good headway. And since that time, they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars cleaning up a hacked breach. So the opportunity cost isn't the one that gets talked about. The amount of lawyers, the amount of uh, financial damage, et cetera, that's the stuff that gets talked about after these breaches. But the opportunity to sail to a different shore, to actually go forward, is what is lost every time you hear one of these massive breaches. So I'm running a little short on time, so I'll go very quickly, a little short on time. One, sometimes. The most complex problems can be solved by really elegant technology. And I'll just kind of put up for you, if you haven't read Daviso Bell's Longitude, read Longitude. One of the hardest problems to international commerce wasn't just the policy and the law. They had people, pirates, hackers, jumping onto ships and taking off cargo or taking ships. Or the ship itself didn't know where to go, so it would run out of provisions before it got to shore. The problem of longitude was the problem of international opportunity and commerce. And it was solved by someone who decided that a pendulum pendulum clock at sea kind of sucked. (laughs) It Doesn't really work. And the stars can't be predictively scheduled for viewing. So something as simple as a pocket watch actually enabled an entire world economy. I think that's where we're at with privacy and security. We'll make it a little more elegant, a little more simple. But it's going to get a little more complicated first because we've got to lay the groundwork before we just start building and gluing things together. So these are our Sexton's tools. These are our dual book accountings. It's classic engineering tools. So this is where um, in the the Privacy Engineers Manifesto, and and please do take a look at it. I'd love to have any sort of criticism. It was written by a psych major and a retired systems engineer and a publisher. Please tell me I'm wrong. I beg you, make something simpler. This is probably the pendulum clock. uh, But it's the the only thing I've had to build my systems and build my products for you. But basically, starting with these flowcharts and using system development tools and techniques, going through metadata models, I cannot tell you how many groups I have walked into over the years and said, where's your data? They want to know how to build a privacy system or a governance system or an information strategy system. And I say, where's your data? And they show me a systems diagram. I said, don't show me a tin can. Tell me what's in, the, in it. And they say, oh, this is it. And so I, you know, I have gone as far as going into my pantry and taking the labels off the cans, because they look like the diagrams that they send you. And I'm like, we're going to cook today. And I get out a bowl, and I just start with my can opener little peas, little chili, little pie sauce, and you stir it all up. That's what you just gave me. Crap. (laughs) Don't give me crap. I need to know what's in there. Because that's where the law comes from. The law comes from what is the right being impinged? What is the opportunity that we're going after? If you want big data, it shouldn't be big data in and gospel out. It should be garbage in, garbage out. Know where your data is. And if you start to look at systems from a data and person perspective, then suddenly you create this library. And I've done this for Intel Security for all of our products. It's amazing to me because people are are paid to work on features. When you look at that feature in the wild, and I'm talking to it, when things go wrong. I'm not the guy who's like, 18 months later, we tape out and we send it out the door, and then I'm on to the next thing. I'm the guy who has to live with the soup, whatever's in that bowl. So what I do is I have a system of record for data. And then when people want to attach things to my system, I do an API call. Because the engineer says, oh, I only need address. Oh, and it's anonymous. I love that. That's my favorite. So you don't know what the data is, but you can tell me that it's anonymous for sure. Okay. I'm a cynical girl. I don't believe y'all. So what I do is I do an API call. And I say, what is the meta- metadata model? How do we prove that this is the information going from hither to on? And it actually turns out it doesn't have to slow down your system thinking. Whether you're waterfall or you're agile, what I posit to you is that when you put the, the, the series of privacy controls down one side, those requirements, you know, proportionality, is it doing what it says it is in the right amounts? How do you query the data? Where do you keep the data? How long does the data live? These are zero and one questions that comprise fair practices and principles. When you put them down on a system activity diagram, on a business activity diagram, suddenly, you know what a bug looks like. Hallelujah. We've never tracked for privacy bugs. We've never done privacy pen testing, because we haven't measured from the metadata and what it's supposed to be doing. Once you build it this way, it's a lot easier to to then go back and do automated calls, automated auditing, and system controls on top of that. Because guess what? Technology, particularly in the privacy space, is not a silver bullet at all. You're still really balancing between things like context, what did my user expect to happen, when it happened, before it happened. And I'll give you an example of this. When I first came to McAfee, I was really surprised at how often my system was calling up the system to check for antivirus. I really thought it was like when you patched, which shows you my technical ignorance. I think a lot of consumers felt the same thing, that the system was just kind of sitting there as a logo and didn't activate until I activated it. Not true. So to say that, it took me 16 pages of typed legalese language. And you can find that at mcafee.com privacy. But if you don't feel like reading 16 pages of single-spaced legal text, you can also look at my graphic novel that I did with chubby little ninjas, because they act out the show. And they were fun, and they were cute, and my boss thought it was crazy. But then I started benchmarking them and testing them and showing them to people whose language wasn't first-use English. And they looked at the ninjas, and they saw what the ninjas were doing as they acted out what our products do, not to a terribly granular level, but at least enough of a basis so people could understand what we're about. Suddenly, I had context, and context lowers my risk from a compliance um, angle. And it it raises my profile as a company that has brand that actually has person centricity. So thinking things through from this level allows me, as your corporate actor, to interact with you faster. I close deals quicker. People want to know how we're processing the data, and I actually know. We're building tools that we know the deficits as well as we know the features. And the beauty of all of this stuff is Everybody who takes computer science should know how to do this. This is not proprietary stuff. This is dual book accounting. And we need to do it for data. And we need to do it desperately now. So at the end of the day, I want you to think about your data. I'll tell you one more story. Yeah, i got time for one more story. Um, This is one of my, I call it the, the rat shit baby. And I'm sorry for my blue language. But once upon a time, there was somebody in the Midwest who bought a little China doll and thought, oh, this is so beautiful. I'm going to put it in my collection. Little China doll goes in the collection. Then another one, and then another. And suddenly we have a show called Hoarders. (laughs) Suddenly that baby is like getting dug out on reality TV and it's covered in rat shit. That's what most of our data centers look like. A rat shit baby. I know you loved it when you collected it. Do you know what you're doing with it? Is it bringing you value in any way? No. Why? We're not having that conversation in the boardroom. Because we think that processing is cheap and storage is free. And I'm telling you, that ratchet baby's expensive. That mold grows across your data center, and your big data turns into big garbage. So curating data, understanding data's value, and what should be put forth, and what should be in storage for later, is really what all fine art museums do. It's what all performance artists do. It's what these other creative people call communication. It also lowers your risk exponentially. It makes your IT people's jobs easier. It makes your marketing more relevant when you curate an asset. This is what my dad calls the flat forehead moment. Oh, yeah. When I invest my portfolio and I think about it, it makes me more money. When I invest in the information economy, it makes more money. This is where we need to get. There are no dragons. The world is not flat. We can use engineering techniques that we already know. So aside from the fabulous fashion, and I'm really sad that it's gone, <laughs> this is one of my great heroes, and hopefully one of yours, the wonderful uh, Rear Admiral Grace Murray Hopper. And I love this statement. Dan Geer has it on page 42 of his book. I always thought that was very profound. It's like the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Turns out it's Grace Hopper's quote. Who knew? Uh, but someday on the corporate balance sheet, there will be an entry which reads information. For most cases, the information is more valuable than the hardware, and I'll add software. Which process is it? She said this in 1965. We're not here yet, but we now we have the technology. It's like the $6 million man. I can tell everyone who's in my, my generation as I'm like, You know, the bionic woman in the ear? You know what I'm talking about. Jamie Summers was a hot ticket back then. Um, But this is back in the 1960s. We're talking about information as an asset. And yet the other narrative is that storage is cheap and processing is free. And look at Gordon Moore's economic law was right. But we're not going here yet. So I think this is where we're going. I think this is exciting. I think this gets investors excited in investing. I think this gets people excited in building things that matter. It's not the same as just building interoperability. It's building interoperability so that you can look in a small child's eyes and recognize that he's not a vegetable. That's cool. That's economically cool. That's culturally cool. So, this is it you know, there's a 10 point manifesto in the manifesto, but this is my point number one data about people is valuable. People buy things, people think things, people feel things, people do things. These are all the language of all of the kind of entities that we have, whether you're an NGO whether you're a government entity, whether you're a corporate entity or a student, just starting out your career. And at the end of this all, these are my girls. This one just turned nine yesterday. Uh, At the end of the journey begins another. At the end of the day, for me, what we've built today is not good enough for them. Shame on us. Shame on us if we don't have a discussion about surveillance. Shame on us if we don't know how to value information in the information age. Shame on us if we don't recognize GDP is dependent upon people that know how to innovate in the data economy. We can do better. A little looking in the past doesn't hurt to look forward. A little humility doesn't hurt to grow. And that's really the point of how I really think about building in things like privacy engineering and having it open sourced for the world to say, oh, that's bad. Here's something better. So bring it on. I'd love something better. Oh, I don't have my, oh no, I don't have my little manifesto. Oh well. Well, we won't do that, but basically, here's the thing. Sacha was wrong. Um, If you aren't part of the whole like women nation, uh, Sacha from Microsoft was asked at Grace Hopper, so bless his heart, he was there. uh, A woman stood up and said, you know, it's really hard for me to ask how to get a promotion or a raise. You know, Do you have any tips? And he kind of was a little on the snarky side, I think. To be fair, he seems like a really nice person. And he just said, oh, just do your work really well, and we'll notice that hard work. <laughs> well, I've been working really hard, and I've done pretty well for myself. But let me tell you what, men and women are different. Another flathead moment, right? The way we communicate with each other isn't a competition. It's accretive value. We actually produce more human beings when one gets together with the other one. Guess what? We can also innovate in the same way when we learn to respect people from different ethnicities and cultures and genders. And it's not that they're in the room as some sort of a tally system. It's because we have a different perspective that will change your mind or challenge you so that you now know that your position was right. And we, in the particularly information security community, are suffering because we're only using the language of combat. And we're not using the language of why. I think about protecting. So you go on a road trip. OK, one more story. I keep saying. We go on a road trip when my kids were really small. And you know it's five hours out of the house. I got two small kids. And you know one inevitably has some sort of liquid coming out of something. So my husband pulls over, he pulls out the bag, and you know what I'm talking about, you have kids. So, and it doesn't smell good, regardless. It's like, why can't they spurt flowers? I don't know. So you, go, you pull over, and he pulls out a baggie of raisins, and an extra outfit, and diapers, and wipes. And, it, and it's like magic, magic. Now, mind you, I'm so busy planting the diaper bag back at the house that we would never have left the house if my hunter-gatherer hadn't said, we are going to the park, because I'm sick of being inside. Men and women, different perspectives, different genders, different ideas. So I really exhort every audience to really think about, have you sat down and really listened to someone with another perspective? When someone has a different communication style or they're a little more introverted, have you really made sure that they have a safe place to share their ideas in meetings? And are you really promoting? the kind of behaviors that would solicit that kind of behavior. I'm seeing too many young women saying cybersecurity is simply not for me. So that's another reason I've been out on this wild road show. I'm a girl. I love it here. I love it. You guys are crazy. Crazy. How many like snarky black t-shirts with the long ponytail and the bulb on top? I don't get it, but it's fascinating to me. The Birkenstocks, I don't get it. Bad fashion. I love it. I love being here. I want more women to understand that we are welcome here. That our ideas are needed here. That we can look at a person and see a person. And sometimes we can look at numbers and just see numbers. There are great cryptos out there that I love, love, love. But they also solve their problems a little bit differently. So that's, that's the end of my soapbox. But I, I kind of made a pact with myself that I'm, I, I've been quiet for too long, laughing at all the wrong jokes and pretending to be one of the guys. Mm-hmm. It's not funny. It's just not funny. Someone licked me this year at a conference. Licked me. I wanted to see if you were as delicious as you looked. How is that OK? How is that OK? I have a 100 of those stories. And I laughed them off. And I have for decades. It's not good enough for my daughters. So that's my soapbox. And that's my, uh, my challenge, is let's think about privacy a little bit differently. Let's think about it as an additive property to security and not something you have to kind of get over with um, going forward. So I think we have like two minutes for questions, right? <laughs> Ten minutes! Oh, luxury time! Okay, I'm scared. Questions! <laughs> or I'm just going to tell stories about Trevor's upbringing. Potty training!
1: Please rescue Trevor by going to the microphone <laughs> there in the uh, aisle.
0: And he's actually a contributor in the book. He architected a a runner's app, because we wanted to prove that this methodology will not stop you from garage-level innovation. You can do this with a grandpa in an afternoon, and and probably pizza. I'm assuming there was Donato's involved at some point.
1: We know you can't program without carbs. Of course not. Uh. (laughs) Oh, good.
0: One brave soul. So, um, so I wanted to welcome you here as a fellow former Sun employee. It's good to see Yay. another fellow. F- we employee. survived. We We're the diaspora. Exactly. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about. Uh, so I'm a security architect. I have security engineers that work for me. We focus on security of systems and information. Is there an equivalent engineering approach? Is it part of our security engineering focus? Is it a separate organization? What do you see as the best way to address privacy engineering aspects in an enterprise? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Actually, there's, I think that's Chapter 12, because there's a number of different ways of solving this. And it's a great question, because what we end up doing a lot of times is kind of anointing the security architects. It's like, oh, and privacy. It's like, oh, great, I'm doing juggling and tightrope walking. Excellent. Um, they are related, of course. And I, I also would say, and audit. So in that same vein of the the person with the most access and knowledge should have something in their HR pay packet related to this. So whether that is your SOX control guys teaching your security architects how to look at data controls as well as security controls. So not just keeping bad guys out and keeping the right levels of access in, but what is the fluid going through the pipe. Is this drinking water or sewage? It's a really important distinction in most architectures. So depending on your organization, and, and Sun's a perfect one of this, because we kind of did a mash mashup. So on the Privacy Council were a lot of the guys from the, uh, the security ambassadors program, and still like crazy Alec Moffat and stuff, and those guys were all, and, and Kevin Mandia. Everyone's done quite well. Um, they don't give their books away for free. They actually make money. Um, but what we did is that kind of give them the training of the specs, so that's one way to do it. I think the other way to do it, coming in cold where even your security architects are so underwater and so overburdened because there's so much to look at, I'll start with the auditing team. And you've got to have someone in legal, but I'm really concerned, quite honestly, how many privacy officers are in the GC's office but not empowered as C-level executives. And it's not easy to not just fill out contracts all day, because you can. You can have a very nice 9 to 5 life and say, look how busy I was. Look how many liability clauses I put in. And it looks like you're doing a really good job. So the CPO has kind of been wandering. And during the, the 2008 downturn, what we saw a lot of was the ampersand. So if you had a separate CISO, they were stuck under the CIO. They certainly weren't elevated up to that level of a CFO, which is really where they kind of both belong. Um, But the CEO is already so overwhelmed with not going to jail under fraud, Um, that I think that there's a couple different ways. You can have a dedicated organization, or you can have a flat little bit here and there with one leader. But it depends on whether you're a regulated industry, whether you've got an aware board, uh, what the personality of your CPO, Because when I started out, there were only five of us. And now there's only 20,000 people that are members of our trade union, which is IAPP, worldwide. That's going to change. The European law will come into effect probably early next year. Um, It will cover, unlike the directive, which came in 1995, every member state had to implement, this will be a regulation. So it will instantly come into effect. And they're looking at it, the Europeans are looking at this as a consumer protection law. And the current draft law says if you have a severe enough breach, it will be 5% of your worldwide turnover for that breach. Suddenly, spines are going to get very straight. So getting this organization in place now is exactly the thing. And whether that's training, so I realize I'm a lawyer and I'm not answering your question, but there's a number of different ways to do it. You can either train up the guys you've got now if they have the interest and the, and the ability, or you can get another army of kind of privacy council people loosely coalesced and I think the best scenario is to have a really strong balanced approach to privacy and security as equal partners of content and gear really But it's a great question, a hard one.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I had a question um, dealing with um, some of the bills that have been going around in DC with uh, cybersecurity threat information sharing with industry Could you talk a little bit about, I guess, um, if McAfee's involved working with the White House or from a privacy perspective, I think there's been at least 14 amendments to it dealing with privacy. A lot of people are worried about how does government share information with industry and vice versa. And obviously, this is a big issue dealing with privacy. So I just wanted to get your thoughts about your engagement with D.C.
0: Well, I'm I'm kind of under some of the same confidentiality shackles (laughs) that we heard before. But I think there's a lot of vice and not a lot of versa um, is is one way of putting it, which is I think there's there's sharing and there's sharing. And we haven't figured out what due process really looks like. And we haven't really figured that out for a global community. So when we share information, um, it's actually not hard to figure out a good architecture for threat intelligence analytics, which is where I started this whole thing. Because I know what these guys are going to do, they're going to compare me with Semantic and Trend, and and probably not Kaspersky, because God knows what's going on over there. But (laughs) what they want is the result. And so what I don't get is whatever IP address or GUID or whatever they want to query. That happens over there in secret. And I say they, meaning a whole bunch of different theys, right? This is a global question that we're asked. This is not a US question. And anybody who is naive enough to think that we are not sharing globally threat intelligence data is just cry cry, because we are. Um, so I think what can happen is you can actually have a safe place where a private query can happen on the part of someone who is in law enforcement, and what they receive is an analytic. And the analytic, if there's enough due process from enough sources, we can give background data. And usually, quite honestly, they already have that data or more data than they already need. If instead, this turns out to be a unique piece of intelligence that only we have, then we have other process so that we can share more information in a very intelligent and practiced way. I think what we need, um, well, there's so many things that we need. We need a dialogue. A public dialogue. Uh, But we also need warranting that works. I've heard so many really, really good agents over the years say the FISA process is slow, I'm trying to prevent someone from getting on a, a plane and getting to somewhere where there's no extradition. Or I'm trying to prosecute someone who's pulling out of money out of a jurisdiction that I can't touch. So understanding how are we doing process, how are we automating the warranting process, what information are we willing to show the public on a transparency basis, these are all questions, I think, that again can be sort of reverse engineered into something that can be somewhat transparent, I, I will say appropriately opaque. And so I think that's where we're going with data sharing. And the problem is, it doesn't sound bite very well. So it's easy to say, spying. It's a lot harder to say, well, intelligent comparison of analytics based on a lot of detail data. Like you've lost Jane Polly, she's died on. You know, and God knows what's going on on the other news stations, right? I don't even know if she's still alive, actually. It's terrible. I'm really dating myself. Is she? What is it doing? Go Jane Pauly. <laughs> really dated myself. Like Jessica Simpson? I don't know. Is she still a thing? Um, so, yeah, so we, we are involved, is the, is the short answer to your question. And I can't tell you a ton of what we're doing, but I am very much involved um, to the point where I've been accused of either being a terrorist uh, because I won't give all the data. Or being some sort of an obstructionist, uh, because I will. I, I mean, it's it depends on the day which one I am. But at the end of the day, what I said to both sides is, you know, a company like ours in particular. Um, I had a grandma, Grandma Blue Hair. We loved Grandma Blue Hair, and she said, you know, don't give away your milk for free if you want want them to buy the cow. Well, I sell cow. I sell cows. So if you want to buy my cow, you want to know my analytic, and you want data, we actually can set up a PO under all the right rules, under every jurisdiction. And I shouldn't say every, because there are naughty ones that I can't really talk about. Then they spend billions and billions on chips, and I can't really say anything terribly public about that. But there's a dialogue even there. So even where there is a culture of 3,000 years of collectivism, it's easy to, to judge some of these economies and say they spy on everything, they look at all the web traffic, but they also, when they have 1% unemployment, have over a million people on their streets hungry. So I try not to, I take all the kind of judgment off the table and say what can we do from a math perspective to share risk, to keep our collective world safer, and then we at least make that progress, and then it turns out that those harder corner cases are really harder corner cases, and that's where we get... The, the really big brains in the rooms, and, and oftentimes under very strict um, clearances. So very fudgy word, answer.
1: <laughs> no, that's great. And, and what we'll do, um, we have uh, videos of our talks, Uh-oh. and we will, uh, we will include on our webpage, the symposium webpage, a link to the book. So if you didn't jot it down, we'll provide a way for you to find it. So let's say thank you to our speaker.
0: Thank you, thank you Michelle.